Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, January 14th, 2014. I've got Ken Jensen on with me today. We're going to be talking about mass casualty triage. This is something we've never really talked about before. It's something I do have knowledge and a background in. I, I really don't know why we've never uh, discussed it before, but I was happy to see Ken's, Ken's, Ken's application come in uh, on this important subject because it's something that we may, I don't know, during this interview, it, it's a pretty straightforward thing that seems like it's, it's, it's only for one thing, but it has my mind percolating now as to how the same methodology could be applied to other needs. You'll kind of hear that happen in the show. Before I bring Ken on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping support the show and making sure that we're here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. From Maxpedition bags to Magpul magazines and everything in between, you will find it at Sawtack. If it's tactical, they've got it. They are veteran-owned, veteran-operated in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. And uh, they even do a discount for you if you're a member of the Support Brigade. You can learn more at sawtac.com. If you want that discount, make sure you log into your MSB account and go to benefits first. Uh, next up today, Ready Mead Resources. That's the company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website, shipped to you with great service and great pricing. And I mean everything from practical tact to tactical to guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at readymaderesources.com. I'd like to remind you the best way to visit Sawtooth, ReadyMade, and any of our sponsors would be to go to thesurvivalpodcast.com first and click on their banners in the right-hand margin or the links for the sponsor of the day in any of the show notes. Again, today's show, 1279. You can look up any of the shows if you're listening to me speaking to you from the past because we're ahead into the future. That happens because... Our content pretty much lives forever here. You know that you can hear every episode of the Survival Podcast all the way back to episode one? Yep, you can go to the website and just start picking through and downloading and listening to all of it you want to. It's all free. It's all on demand 100% of the time. But what if you're like, Jack, there's like 1,270 of them. I don't know if you've checked, bud, but there's a bunch of them there. And I'd like to get them all real quick and have them all. Well, there is a way to do that. We have them in zip files in blocks of 24, and you can download each block of 24. And once you have them, extract them out of those zip files and drop them into iTunes or wherever you want them. Um, but we do save that for members of the support brigade. That's one of the many benefits of becoming an MSB member. Uh, you get zip files where they're compressed and take a lot less time to download, and they're all in one place. And, uh, you know, honestly, you probably, once you're a member, if you're going to stay a member, you don't really need to worry about but download maybe a, a hundred or so at a time anyway. How many can you listen to in a day? Uh, I'd like to believe that there's people listening to me 24-7 in their sleep. But but honestly, I mean, that's that's something that takes a while. And it is funny. We do get people that email me and go like, dude, I found the show. I thought it was so awesome. I went back and started episode one. And I'm like, man, I hope you hope you make it through the first hundred episodes when I was kind of struggling to find the groove of the show in the beginning. But it is an interesting exercise to do. Especially episode one, you want to talk about a bad podcast. It was uh, it was pretty bad, but it did lay down what TSP would become, and you know, funny enough, uh, it did, and it did a large part because of the member support brigade. This is how you support the show: you go to the survivalpodcast.com, you click on members, you sign up as a member, and you get a login to a private members site. In there, there's discounts to over 40 vendors. I'm going to be bringing you two new ones probably this week. One, definitely. Another one that's returned, it's already there. I just need to update the site a little bit for you so it doesn't uh, say. And, and, and um, on top of that, uh, another one that I've worked out a deal with that you just need to get their site set up to be able to do discounts for you. And this is going to be cool stuff, just, just being added to something that's already a great deal. And if you're military law enforcement or Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, a paramedic, or a firefighter, any of those things, you get a discount for your service. Just email me with service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or what you did in one or two sentences, 
Again, service discount and subject line. Send an email to jack at com. Do this before, not after you join the MSB. If you do it after, all I can do is tell you what to do on renewal to get the discount on your renewal. Uh, I've been running the discount now for well over a year, so there's no reason for anybody to have not known about the discount. I say it all the time. Well, then I'm about ready to get into main topics today. We do have not much on our history segment today. I do not have an episode 1279 uh, history segment from Alex, who does these things for me, and I'm almost a thousand percent sure it's my fault. He's so good about these that uh, it's not likely that he didn't send me one. It's likely that it somehow ended up in the wrong box, and I took it for granted and didn't look for it. Um, but I do want to uh, talk about one little little thing that happens here because it's big enough of a name that uh, everybody would probably at least have heard of. And if you've been listening to the show, we've talked a lot about the Mongol Empire. Uh, you know, of course, Genghis Khan, Kublai Khan, that type of stuff, right? So the, in 1279, the Mongol Empire reaches its largest extent. Now, had it stopped expanding into... Uh, into the, the the West a long time ago, it had reached its 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 high tide line there, but it's continued to occupy more space in the East. But even at this point, that it's reached the biggest, broadest empire it will ever be, it's already begun to fragment and fall apart. Uh, that's that is the you know kind of the status of the Mongol Empire in 1279, and it, it teaches us a couple things. That one, that no empire can truly stand. I mean, that's something that we, I think we really need to understand. There is no such thing as an empire that can truly stand. The larger an empire becomes, the weaker it becomes. At a certain point, as it grows, it actually becomes more and more and more powerful, and it reaches a part in a bell curve, just like some like peak oil. It's the same thing. It's pattern, right? And we learn pattern in permaculture. Patterns repeat themselves. When we start to understand patterns, we see them pretty much everywhere. Again, you see patterns over and over again. You start to recognize them. And, and it's something that we see with every empire that's ever existed. An empire will grow and it will prosper as it reaches out its tentacles and begins to absorb the resources of others and pull them back into the heart of the empire. It becomes more and more powerful. It sets up commerce and operations at the extent that it can within its empire. And begins to cause the members of its of its uh, that are living underneath its rule to try to live as close to the way that the empire itself lives as possible, and for the benefit of those in power. And as it reaches further and further out, it has less and less ability to enforce its will and domination on others. And at a certain point, the people being oppressed begin to realize not only are they oppressed, not only are they tired of it, not only do they want to take control back, but they look over and the people that have been so powerful start to look a little weak. And it is a pattern. It repeats itself in large scale and small scale. Another place it repeats itself is with lion prides. It's, it's the same thing that happens when... A alpha male lion has been running a pride for years and years, and there's usually two males to a pride. And the younger, smaller male uh, generally concedes to the larger alpha male and lives basically under that large alpha male's protection and, and just kind of lives life and doesn't get to breed any females. If he does, he has to sneak away and maybe get lucky here and there. Uh, runs with the pride, partakes in a lot of the pride's benefits, and just kind of waits and then one day, that bigger male that's always beat him down every time he's, he's dared even look at him wrong, he looks at him and goes, something's different. Something's not quite the same anymore. I, and he looks, and all of a sudden, it just occurs to him, this is my time. And he'll savagely beat the older male who will oftentimes at that point become the beta male, become the lesser male, and, and concede, but usually is on his way out completely. Uh, it will be you know the final bachelorhood uh, where he'll be driven away as a new younger male will come into the pride, be accepted by the alpha as the new beta, and continue on. This is what happens to empires. The people within the empire notice one day that all of the threats don't quite mean as much as they did anymore 
and they choose to rebel in one way or another through apathy, through direct conflict, through activism, whatever it is. But if you think about it, if you look at every empire, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, uh, the British Empire, and the crumbling American Empire, they all run the same cycles. They all run the same cycles. And the truth is, our empire probably reaches further than it ever has, but it's already begun to fragment. And with that, let's get into uh, our main topic today. I am introducing now to you. Ken Jensen, the clever survivalist, to talk about mass casualty triage. Hey, Ken, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. I'm happy to be here. Hey, I've got you on today to talk about emergency triage. Um, and probably, based on your background, I'll probably get into some wilderness uh, survival stuff, too, here and there. But um, I always like to get the audience kind of introduced to the guests with some level of a personal connection. So most people don't. You know, at 10 years of age, think I'm going to grow up and learn emergency triage. They have, you know, dreams of like, I don't know, skateboarding or something like that. And then they go through this kind of crooked path and they end up, you know, in whatever they end up in. Could you kind of talk about your background and how you ended up as uh, today you are the producer of the blog, the clever or clever survivalist dot com. How, how do you how do you end up there from uh, from wherever you started? Well, uh, you mentioned everybody uh, on just a couple shows ago you mentioned in your intro for someone that um once they had the skate you had the skateboarding thing in there but you also had that they like to go and spend time out in the woods well that was me so my history actually did kind of lead to this um what it is is i grew up as a child in arkansas and my father and i spent a lot of time in the forest and stuff around my house and we did a lot of primitive camping a lot of hunting we you know, and that that kind of got me into the wilderness survival stuff. Um, now, <laughs> through lots of time, that naturally turned into urban survival, and I'll get to that in just a minute. Um, if you want to know a little bit about me professionally, uh, I spent you know time as an electronics technician and nuclear reactor operator in the military, and uh, I hated all the red tape, so I decided to get out of that. <laughs> and get into electronics, um, and then that led me to industrial electricity. So all of these are like really hands-on technical jobs, and that a lot of that seeds um, knowledge that will help you in survival. And then um, in in a business home front, I've succeeded and failed both in marketing and in real estate. <laughs> uh, and I know you, Jack. I listen to your business podcast. Um, or used to, um, that, uh, podcast was really awesome. And I know that you think that, uh, failure is a success because you learned something from it. And I completely agree with that. So that also helps in survival because in survival, you're never going to succeed. I am entrepreneur minded just because of, you know, all the business stuff in the past and all the books and things that I've read. So, to make a full circle here, as I was getting into the world of online business, I was turned on to your podcast. And I've listened to pretty much every episode of your uh, survival podcast and ended up listening to your business podcast. So, while I'm really into wilderness survival and I'm learning things and I start despising the way the government does things. I'm also listening to this libertarian guy that uh, feels the exact same way about me or, or about the government. And, um, well, that kind of turned me into an urban survivalist very quickly, a modern-day survivalist, as you would say. Yeah, and I think it's important when people like make that distinction. I know you know because you listen to me all the time, but – it's really the two worlds overlap it's because the skills certainly transfer. There's just different resources that you harvest to do different things. And, uh, you know, my, my view is that with modern survival, what we're doing is we're not at all discarding the, uh, the primitive skills. We're just not ignoring the resources that are available in modern times. And, and those two worlds together make uh, for a very powerful combination. Again, I know you know that I'm saying that because, we have new people tuning in here all the time and maybe don't have that 
frame of reference uh, when you use the term modern survivalism. But um, you actually have this this blog, and you're a podcaster yourself. What I've got you on to talk today, though, about is uh, emergency uh, triage and what you call the SMART method, a mass casualty emergency response method for first responders. Can you explain what START triage stands for? Yeah, START triage actually is a – it just stands for Simple Triage and Rapid Treatment. That's what the acronym is. And, um, well, let, let's kind of back up a little bit, and we'll just talk about what simple triage is because that's, that's what's going to be the most beneficial. Uh, the rapid treatment is kind of an after-the-fact thing, and that's mostly what the medical professionals are going to do. Um, I've, my company that I work for now, because I'm not a full-time podcaster, which I would love to be, Jack, um, my company actually put me through – school for this for the triage portion of it and um well jack uh simple triage is uh the first responder triage that's uh usually at the scene of a mass casualty incident and some examples of this will be earthquakes highway accidents uh airplane crashes you know train derailments uh building collapses economic collapses terrorist attacks material releases earthquakes you know things like that um where there are going to be a lot of people hurt, a lot of people dead, and a lot of people that are screaming at you, saying that they're hurt, but they are not the priority for medical attention. I believe that the simple triage is a very valuable thing, especially if uh, you know your caller, your uh, listeners are going to be joining the citizens assisting citizens that you have. And I'll let you talk about that if you want. But um, the Citizens Assistant Citizens would be a perfect thing to implement the START triage uh, plan because you can take uneducated, medically uneducated people and they can learn simple triage that will help all of the, um, all of the first responders and ambulances, all the medical professionals that are going to show up. Yeah, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the reason for triage, why, why we actually take this approach? Well, the reason for triage is to determine the priority of a patient's treatments based on the severity of their condition. It's a quick way to prioritize the injuries so that we can figure out who needs immediate attention and who doesn't. Because when a medical professional shows up at, I don't know, a bombing at, um, at a marathon, and you have bloody people all over the place, well, there's only so many of those. But if everybody has simple triage training then you have a whole bunch of people in the crowd. Instead of standing there, they could be sorting through the people and decide who the medical personnel need to uh, pay attention to. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that I've, I've dealt with in the past would be, you know, you're, you, you basically are taking charge of a situation, and the first thing would be, who's hurt? And hands go up everywhere. Who's hurt and can walk? Every hand stays up. Go that way. Get out of here. Just get you out of the way. If you're walking wounded, you're not a, a huge uh, priority, and more help is available that way, and let's get you out of the way so we can deal with the people who are a higher priority, and then it kind of goes on from there, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I really like to think this is what I thought was really cool about triage is because if you're uh, on the front line in, in military, if you're on the front line and you, you're a medic or something, well, that's essentially what a medic is going to do is this triage. And, uh, you know, it was used in World War One by French doctors um, just so that they could treat everybody and give them the care that they needed because there were such mass casualties that they just couldn't do with everybody. So they divide them into three categories, uh, or they divided them into three categories, which are those who are likely to live no matter what care they get, those that are likely to die no matter what care they get, and those where immediate care is going to make a difference whether they live or die. So now we uh, use it to decide how immediate a response is going to be for that victim. Yeah, and I think that that puts people in touch with a certain reality of, of, of violence, I guess would be the way to put it, that 
you know, it's easy to, in this day and age of television shows and people constantly having their heart jump-started 400 times on TV or whatever, to think that you can save anyone who's not dead yet. But there's there's a, a harsh reality that in a, in a mass casualty situation, there are going to be people that if you could matter transport them like Star Trek onto an operating table, they're still going to die. Um, and the number of people that are going to die is going to go up because we can't do that. So then there's also the reality on the ground of, look, maybe if this person was sitting in an ER right now, there'd be a chance. But under the current conditions, this guy's going in the group three, you know, and that's the horrible thing. But I think actually thinking this way helps people to start to understand uh, the reality that we may have to eventually deal with. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think it it really does. It it shows a reality and it shows you that uh, you know, there are things beyond our control. I mean, you use the analogy all the time. You can be this uh crazy, you know, essentially what everybody nowadays would call the crazy doomsday prepper guy with all this stuff, you know, underground bunker and everything and you can walk across the street and get hit by a Mack truck and bam, you're freaking dead. Just because you're a survivalist doesn't mean you're going to survive everything that happens. Uh, all we do is we put systems in place so that we can help our families and ourselves have the best means of survival, but not only survive, we want to thrive when something like this happens. We want to, you know, when, when there's mass casualty now, uh, let's bring it back to the topic. When there's mass casualty, it, it's really good to have all these people that, I mean, I want to bring it back to your citizens assisting citizens. I know this isn't an infomercial for yeah. for that, but, I mean, that is a really great program. I think you're doing great things, Jack, and I think that's a, just a really great thing that you're doing um, to implement the citizens assisting citizens because we don't have enough personnel to take care of this stuff. We need to have people who are educated at least to the point where they can make it easier on those who who are doing this. And just because we don't agree with the policies of government, and like you, I'm a libertarian, and I agree that um, 99.99% of things should be private, and um, we won't get into that too much today since this is all about triage, but um, even though we don't agree with all these policies, and even though we don't agree with some of the people that have put that have been put in place, we can do whatever we can to help so that we can save lives. Because like you said recently, we're not, we're not all about ourselves. We're not selfish people. We're out there trying to help other people as well. That's why, you know, we have big sacks of rice and stuff for our neighbors. You know, it's cheap, but it's going to help them live whenever uh, something hits. You know, and then that, my family gets all the really good stuff because guess what? They're my family. <laughs> No. Yeah, it makes me think of what Steve Harris says about storing deer corn for your neighbors because it's easier to feed them than to shoot them. And there's uh, there's some truth to that. Um, on the citizens assisting citizens things, that that project right now is in a, is sort of a holding pattern. I've turned that over to a board of directors, and uh, they're trying to set it up so that we can work with you know, NGOs, non non governmental organizations, and and governmental organizations. Uh, we're waiting on approval of 50, 50C3 status, which is a pain in the butt, and uh, I don't really have a lot to do with it on a daily basis. Hopefully, we're going to have this thing formally launched in this first quarter of the year, but um, I, I would just say that so that anybody that's thinking about helping in any way you can, help where you can, when you can, and hopefully we'll get this thing going, because it is, it is an important initiative. Uh, but for right now, let's, let's stick on topic here. Um, could you take people maybe through a typical scenario to show how the start system would work, like create a disaster and, and, and then explain how people using the triage method could help make things more manageable in a, in a bad situation? Well, Jack, uh, I'd love to take you through the scenario, but as far as the other stuff that you said after that, um, we're on Skype and, and you keep uh, cutting out on me, but I will try to do the best that I can. Um, with what I heard, okay? <laughs> sure. All right. So uh, the let's the scenario that I'm going to talk about today isn't going to be super typical, but you know everybody knows about uh, large highway accidents. Well, that can be a tr you know that's kind of the same thing as what I'm going to talk about. Uh, let's let's consider a train accident. 
you know, a train derailment. So if, uh, you know, you're, you're coming up to a train stop or whatever and it's right beside a turn and then, uh, you see the train derail on the turn because somebody decided that they or somebody forgot to do their preventative maintenance on something that's going to uh, shift the rails or shift the tracks, and then the train gets derailed, well, guess what? Um, there's a good chance that there's going to be a lot of hurt people there. So what we would do, and here the steps are pretty easy to remember, it's RPM. Now, there's a video that makes it real cheesy that uh, I sent to you, and I have it available on uh, one of my blog pages. But the steps are RPM, and uh, the the cheesiness in that video was when you're feeling all revved up, just remember RPM, which, okay. uh, yeah, I said that's pretty freaking cheesy. Respir- uh, but it stands for respirations, pulse and perfusion, and then mental status. So first thing you're going to do whenever you go into that train is you're going to walk in there and you're going to say, all right, if there's anybody that can get up and walk out, come with me. And then as they walk out, you're going to have tags or tape or something like that that have a color or uh, a word on them. So anybody who walks out, you're going to tag them as green and minor because if they have breath and if they have pulse and they can understand what you're saying enough to walk out on their own, they are the minor group of people. Now back to what you were saying. You get them the heck out of the way because you don't need 30 people standing there telling you how to do what you're doing, and you don't need 30 people standing there telling you that they're the worst ones. So we mark them as minor. Then we can actually get to work. We may want to actually keep a couple with us because, um, you know, they may not know anything, but they can easily help you when you have to help stop bleeding and stuff like that. So first thing you're going to do after you've uh, marked those guys as minor is you're going to go through each person, start where you're standing. Don't look around and decide you know, which one you're going to get to first because each person's going to get less than 30 seconds of your attention. So you're going to start where you're at, and you're going to go to the closest person and make your rounds. First thing you're going to check is respirations. If this person is not breathing, then you can position their airways to see if they're going to breathe. You know, you can do a finger sweep into their mouth to look for things in there. You can adjust their neck, and they've actually decided, the people who uh, started implementing this, they've decided that it is better for the person to breathe and live than do you worry about aggravating a neck injury. I mean, wouldn't you agree? I would agree with that. I've, I've always had an issue with, you know, don't move. Well, he's not breathing. So he's, he, he, I might screw up his neck, but if I don't do something, he's going to die. So, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, um, after you position the airways, is the person still breathing? No? Well, here's the sad part. You have to mark him as deceased because there's a good chance he's not going to make it by the time anybody gets there anyways. But if he is breathing after you've done that, well, then you're going to mark him as immediate. And that person is done. That's as far as you go with that one. Now, if you've checked someone and they do have respirations without your, without your uh, intervention, well, if they're breathing really fast, um, I don't know if this is going to go over the mic, but if you, you, know, if you hear them going... <laughs> Well, that right there means that um, they're having trouble and something is wrong, so you mark them as immediate. Right away, that person's done. Now, if they are breathing and it's under 30 breaths a minute but over 10, then you're going to move on to the next step. So that was R in the RPM. Now, P is pulse and perfusion. So you're checking for their pulses after you found out that they can breathe by themselves and their breath is normal. So you look for uh, whether the pulse is there or you look for what's called capillary refill. That's what the perfusion is. And the best way to do the capillary, and, and I, I actually would prefer people do the capillary refill instead of the pulse because if you push down on your thumbnail, it goes white underneath your finger. 
and then you let go, it's going to go pink or uh, reddish in color within two seconds. So if theirs doesn't do that within two seconds, they have a an issue. They may have a faint pulse, but they still have an issue, and you mark them as immediate. While you're doing this, you look around for bleeding. If they are bleeding profusely, well, you're going to go ahead and put pressure on it, do whatever you have to do to reduce that. But we are not doing first aid to people right now. We are sorting people. So you can get one of those miners that uh, that you told to get the heck out of the way. Well, that that's one of the few that you keep there, and you tell them to you know put pressure on that wound or something so that you can move on to the next person because they obviously don't know what they're doing. So, I mean, they can be helpful somewhere. Otherwise, they would be doing what you're doing now. So if um, if you are getting the capillary refill or they have a strong pulse, then you're going to move on to the next step. The next step is the M portion of RPM. It's just mental status. Mental status uh, is whether they can follow your instructions or not, really. All right, so... What you're going to do on this person is you're going to start asking them questions. You can do things like ask their names. You can ask the day of the week. You can ask them to squeeze your hand. Just something that takes a little bit of thought. You know, don't ask them the square root of 5,630. But, <laughs> you know, you, wanna, you want to require them to think about something in order to do what you're asking. So when we asked those people to walk out, that was checking their mental status right there. Now, these people were asking, you know, because they obviously didn't get up and walk out. We're going to ask them this other stuff. Now, because they couldn't walk out, we're not going to mark them as minor if they can follow the commands. We've gone through RPM all the way, and, you know, they seem fine for the most part, but they didn't walk out. So we're going to mark them as delayed. It's yellow. It's delayed. And what that means is they're not immediate but they get attention before people who walked out. If they comprehend the answer, that's when they're delayed. If they cannot comprehend what you're saying to them and can't follow simple direction, well, then we're going to mark them as immediate also. Immediate is red, and I didn't tell you earlier, but deceased is black. So that's pretty much what you're going to do in in the scenario. Um, and... Yeah, I think a really good scenario is the one on that cheesy video that I sent you. <laughs> you know, um, when people listen to that, they might, you know, come up with the question then, you know, you, you mentioned uh, ABC. Uh, how does that relate to RPM? All right, well, uh, all right, most of the people who are going to be doing this, uh, let, let's be honest here, most normal people aren't going to be going through the simple triage method. Um, most of them are going to be the first person on scene that is a first responder. And those people know the ABCs of CPR. CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. I think I got that right. Yep. But um, and the ABC stands for airway, breathing, and circulation. Now, that is what's used for CPR for you to assess a person when you're giving them CPR to determine the care that they're going to get, whether they need CPR or not. This, it's a way for you to set things up. But the reason why it relates to RPM is because if you think about it, if you just back up a second, everybody has their own acronyms and mnemonics. But ABC is airway, breathing, circulation. RPM is respiratory, perfusion, and mental status. The only difference here is that mental status, because you're checking the breathing and airway in respirations, and you're checking circulation in the pulses and perfusion. So it's essentially they're looking at the same stuff, and that's how, how they relate. Just one of them can be done by an uneducated person, and I hate saying uneducated. <laughs> I really do, but I just have a lack of better terms for them. But people who are ignorant to actual CPR or someone who is not going to do CPR because he's one person in a 50-casualty incident. Well, and I think there is that that point that, like, 
that that triage is the first thing that has to be done because while you're jacking around trying to breathe life into somebody that should have a black tag on them, you you could have identified ten who need immediate treatment. When responders get there, they can provide that immediate treatment, and you've helped save ten lives versus tried to save one that wasn't going to make it. The other thing is, once that triage is done, if you have any of these advanced skills, that triage is there for you to prioritize who you go after first and who you try to help first. Because once the triage is done, if you know CPR or you have, you know, like you have a background as a paramedic or an EMT, you can start to render aid. But if you start trying to render aid before assessing that situation, people who would not have died will. And people who were not going to live anyway will possibly take your time. Or people that would have lived no matter what, they would have been okay, will will end up taking time that could have been spent with someone like it was in serious, serious condition that you could have helped. And I think it's hard for people to get their head around the fact that in some situations, some people just don't qualify for your time, not because of who they are as a human being, because of flat reality. And it's something that I'm sure ER doctors have to think about on a daily basis, but it's hard for the average person to get their head around. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's it is it's really hard for people to just. I mean, you walk up and and you see all these bodies lying there, and half the people are screaming at you. The other half aren't saying anything. So the first one you're going to go to is a screaming person, which. And, and if you think about it, that's probably the one that you don't have to go to because they're yep. screaming at you. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and all these other people are just laying there and they're not going to get treatment just because they didn't draw your attention. That, yeah. That's not right. I mean, because there would be some times where the start system would cause you to do something that you would call counterintuitive um, and to your natural response. So, you know, could you talk about why it's important to continue to follow that system if if you feel that way? Yeah, yeah, the system well, first off, let's say, the system is a suggestion. It is not something that people have to follow to the T. It's mm-hmm. important that people understand that you teach a survival mentality. You teach people to think. Don't just freaking act, but think. This gives you a method, but you so it's 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 a method for you to follow, but you have to use your freaking brain. You don't want to be, you know, an idiot. You, you you need to use your mental capacity. That's why it's there. All right. The idea is going to be to quickly assess anyone and everyone and then decide who to begin work on afterward. This is exactly what you were about to, or that's what you were talking about a minute ago, is once you're done with the triage, you can go back and start helping people. The system is over at that point. The triage system is, is over. Now you can go into first responder or CPR or whatever you know. But uh, one one thing that really, I mean, it, it this is a sad thing, so hopefully people don't <laughs> turn it off now, but... If you're in a mass casualty and you come up on a baby that's not breathing, right? I mean, we all have children, and and we would hate for this to be our child. But the baby's not breathing. And you feel a faint pulse. What's the first thing you're going to want to do, Jack? You know it's got a little bit of a pulse. Well, you're going to want to start CPR and try to save the the, the baby. I mean, that's what you're going to want to do. I mean, there's no doubt in the world that's what you're going to want to do. Yes, that is what I want to do. Yeah. And and I'm the one telling you not to do it. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I want to do because it's a baby, and it has a little bit of a heartbeat, so you think, oh, I could save this one, especially because I know CPR. Correct. So the start method tells you the baby isn't breathing you did your airway sweep you moved its head it's dead so you just allowed someone's baby to die but on the flip side there could be four babies behind that one that if you don't tag them immediate they're not going to get help 
So yeah, I, I think it's all situational. I mean, if you had a, I don't know, bunch of people in uh, a similar type of situation, let's say a earthquake or whatever, and nobody is completely incapacitated, but there's a lot of people scraped up and hurt. But everybody that you, you everybody you see, everybody you look at is coherent. You're not going to be running around putting tags on people. Um, this is for a specific type of situation where it's an overwhelming numbers situation. And the sorting process saves lives. In the end, you, you, since some people are going to die, the question then becomes, how can we save the most people? Exactly, Jack. It's, it's all about how can we save the most people. And I agree with you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't come up on a casualty of three people and start going through the start method because <laughs> I'm mentally going through that method by looking at the three people. Yeah. Now, if there's 40 or 50 people there, I don't know where to start, so I'm going to start where I'm at. I'm going to tell people to get up and go, and I'm going to start that start method. And once that's over with, then I'm going to put on my first responder hat and start trying to save lives. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, the other thing is if I'm in that situation and I do have uh, significant training in, in first response if I have people around me that can do this for me, the triage for me, then I can start paying attention to the red tags. And, and I think that is the other thing. This is designed to be used um, in a, a somewhat of a teamwork mentality, that that's, that's what it's designed to do. I mean, what you've explained, if you have a person who's kind of sharp and gets it and wants to help, I can teach you to do this literally in one minute. And just start saying, "Do this is what I need you to do with these people. Get first, let's get the walking wounded the hell out of here. And this is how I want you to check everybody else. And then I can go into that first responder mode. And I mean, what you've described is a huge part of, and it, it, it doesn't seem like it ever goes anywhere. Uh, but cert training. Um, yeah. In fact, part of the reason we came up with the CAC idea was that cert is this great program, and the cert people show up and are always told, "We don't need you." Um, and, and I think they've lost the funding for that program, so they're going to stop doing the trainings. But triage is a big part of the initial cert training, and it's because it's for this situation. It's for this very reason that if I'm running around figuring out who needs my help, every minute that I spend doing that is a minute I could have spent with someone who was already determined to have needed it, where I could have been making a difference. Instead of figuring out, oh, this person's dead. Oh, this person's just in some kind of, you know, they've seized up mentally. They could get up and walk away if they wanted to right now, and they're freaked out and they won't do it. Fine, you can sit there until we get everybody else. And it, while every second I spend to do that, I could be, you know, giving somebody who's right on the cusp a, a few breaths and chest compressions and get them kind of stabilized enough that the next level of response can get them out and, and possibly keep them alive. Or I could be dealing with a serious bleed um, in a, and get that under control. And then, like you said, bring in somebody else, a bystander, and say, I've done as much as I can with this. You need to hold on here and and, rest, and just keep reassuring this person that, that we're taking care of them. And yeah, one, for me I'm to sorry, function Jack. that way, I need someone else doing the other stuff. Yeah, yeah, you do. And, and here's a couple other ideas uh, along with that. I mean, you don't have to have another person to put pressure on on bleed, do you? You don't have to have another person. You can rip the person's sleeve off and use it as a tourniquet. Sure. And then people who can't even stop a bleed can sit there and say, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay and reassure them and hold their hand you know, yeah. to make them feel better so they're not screaming at you, the guy who's trying to do the job. Well, and they're also freaking out the other people. I mean, that's something I don't think you will get about a mass casualty. The person there that's like gone into like um, a shock state, but not like a, a, like I don't know what the has gone hysterical. Let's put it that way. They've gone hysterical. That person screaming, "We're all going to die," or whatever it is, is detrimental to the health of the other people trying to survive. Um, and and if we can reassure that person and get confidence into the people that are there that help is coming we are going to do everything we can for you it sounds ridiculous because there's such a mechanical mentality in in life and death in, in modern times but it does increase the number of people who will survive 
And it also increases the number of people that won't just survive, but will recover mentally from the situation. Um, a person that's in an event like this has been damaged physically, yes, but they've also been damaged mentally. And the mental injury is compounded by the physical injury. And all of the things that go on in the initial treatment add on to that mental trauma. And you can have a person that we put back together, the doctors do the best they can, they recover physically quite well, and they're never emotionally recovered. And part of that emotional recovery is understand right from the very beginning, treating the entire patient and understanding, yeah, if this person's over here screaming and yelling and hollering and there's really nothing wrong with them or they're bleeding, but you're going to be okay, right? It looks like a lot of blood, but it's not. You're not leaking a lot of blood. We've got a compression. And we can just calm that person down. We increase the survivability and recoverability of everybody in the incident. You wouldn't be talking about post-traumatic stress disorder and, <laughs> and, and having the ability to help somebody not get it, would you? Yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm going with that, yeah. You know, uh, kind of like you, I don't believe in all these 9 billion different disorders, but post-traumatic stress is definitely one that I do agree is an actual disorder because, you know, you go through something like that, I mean, you're just going to have nightmares about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, if you don't mind me backpedaling a second. No, go you, ahead. You actually triggered a thought in my mind that I haven't even thought up until now. I have, uh, you know, you know, I showed you or sent you a link to some charts that give direction. Uh, all the steps that I was talking about, there are charts for those. Now, what if we just had a lot of those charts on cardstock or on something uh, like a quarter sheet of paper or something? And we did. We handed those out to people, and they now can do the steps. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of value to that. Um, it would seem to me that, like, for a triage situation, you have these tags, that the tags themselves could be the instructions. Um, you know, um, it, you could hear. <laughs> and, you know, a person has to have a reasonable capability to function that way. But I think a lot of people get it. I think that the biggest problem that you would ever have in using people not previously trained for triage to do triage is getting them over the mental hurdle of you got to keep moving. You got to sort and you got to keep moving because it is very counterintuitive. If I see someone in pain, hurting, and I know that I could do something to make them more likely to survive or to relieve their pain or to relieve their anxiety, everything in me as a human being wants to do it. The reason I even know what to do in the first place and have training is not so that I can say, well, I have this background. It's so I can do it. That's the only reason I would even invest the time and effort to learn the skill set. Because um, I don't want to do it as a profession. I'm not an EMT. I'm not a paramedic. I don't want to be one. Um, so it's it's innate in, in most people to want to help their fellow man, especially when they're in pain or suffering. And to get people that don't even know what to do to stop trying to do what they don't know and just do what they can, I think is your biggest hurdle. Um, and it's why, you know, I think it's a big part of why they, they did put a lot of this into the cert training because it was like, if we have a group of people that can do this and they know what to do and they get why, then all of our first responders are more effective. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, you know, I, I actually don't really um, – uh, how do I put it this way? The tags are great. The tags yeah. are made by someone who's really into making things the best that they are for the first responders, stuff like that. But for us as, as just, you know, uh, citizens, as survivalists, I mean, we're going to keep a – I mean, we could keep a stack of expensive cards – but how about this? Why don't you have uh, like a, a a belt attached to like a little carabiner clip and have four different colors of electrical tape on it? Yeah. So you could just start marking everybody by color. Yeah. And first responders are supposed to know that stuff. Yeah. And yeah, it is, I think that's one thing we, you know, we said it's not a rule. It's not a requirement. It's a system. It's a suggestion. It's something that works. But... It is a standard. 
right? I mean, that's what you're getting at there. It is a standard. There, green means something. Red means something. It, it, it's known. And a person that doesn't know it probably is not employed as a professional first responder. It, it's, it, it's, as, it's as known as when I was in te- telecommunications, wires have a color code. I couldn't have done my job if I didn't know the color code for the wires. A, a paramedic knows these color codes uh, as well as they know how to drive uh, their emergency vehicle or as well as they know how to put on a bandage. Yeah, um, that, that's true. I mean, they, they've had this training. And this is like an, you know, this is an introductory training. This isn't like, oh, let's be a first responder and let's go through simple triage. This is... Before you become a first responder, let's do the most important thing because you might be the first one on the scene of an accident. As far as the color code goes, Jack, I'm going to disagree with you, but politely. Okay. You could have done that job without color coding because I worked with someone as an industrial electrician who's completely colorblind. Isn't that scary? Yeah. But Yeah, he was an electrician. He has a lot less wires to worry about. Yeah, well, we just went ahead and made him a supervisor because he scared us. <laughs> I guess so. This is the black one, right? No. <laughs> no, that one's uh, What I'm talking about, we we we'd be running cables that were 500 pairs. Yeah, uh, I know. I'm just kidding with you. you. you, you got to get through that. Anyway, but I'll tell you what I like about the, the electrical tape, right? If you had, as part of your go bag, your, your bug out bag, your kit, whatever you call your kit, four rolls of electrical tape, right? Black, red, yellow, and green. Yep. Yes, they will function as triage tags. Yes, a first responder should know what the hell it means when they see a guy wandering around with a green piece of tape on his arm. Absolutely. But they do a million other things. Yes, They're, they do. Tape is a multifunction thing. It can function as cordage. It can function as binding. It can function as a marker for other reasons. So I actually have never heard anybody say that before, and I think that it's if, – if you if – you, you know, if you learn this system and add those things to your kit, you've also just added this multifunctional element, this function stacking to your kit. Yes. Permaculture principle there. It's you going throw, in my kit. <laughs> you keep throwing that in there, bud. Yeah, it's it's going in. I'm I'll probably have tape ordered off of Amazon before we're done with this interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um yeah, as an electrician, I automatically kinda go there. Um, because I use electrical tape like a lot of people use duct tape. It's, you know, if it moves and isn't supposed to, I throw tape on it. If it's not supposed to move, or if it's not supposed to move and it does, I throw tape on it. But if it is supposed to move and it doesn't, I throw WD-40 on it. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, after that, then I have to start thinking about stuff. And God forbid we survivalists do that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Um, yeah, I'm actually looking. There's actually some some uh, packages of tape that have every color that you need except black. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that's they also because... have white though in them, so black's easy to find. So yeah, black uh, is the standard. So yeah, you're gonna go to Amazon and you're gonna see huge packages of black tape. Black, yeah, but what a great idea. Um, and and the multifunction and see what that now you got my head gone. So we're talking about triage here, but I can think of multiple possibilities of scenarios where you would need to mark things for any type of teamwork environment. Like yeah. you get to a situation and you decide that um, you know you you need to set up some 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 barriers or some zones. Um, I, I, I can't even really begin to come up with all the scenarios right now. But the concept that what would have this multi-colored uh, marking system that would be based on something known, so black could become danger, right? Because black means dead. Or uh, red. Or red because uh, yeah. red's easier to see, and that's and danger in industry. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's really cool. I'll have to think more about that one. Um, are there any resources you know of that would be beneficial to the audience in learning more about this? I mean, I think you've mentioned a couple of them. You keep yeah. mentioning these, these, these things you've sent me. I don't know if you sent them to Dorothy when she booked you or what, but I haven't seen any of them, so I'm a little well, dark on those. You could resend them to me, I guess. Yeah, if if I have not sent them to you, I'm sorry. I thought I did, and I, I thought I attached all this stuff to, um, or at least the link to it, 
Yeah. And in the when when I signed up to be a guest, but um, just in case that you don't want to go searching for all that again, I, I made two links. You know, you already said that I'm a uh, I'm a blogger and a podcaster, and I actually have those on two separate sites. So I assume that your listeners would prefer to go to my podcast page, but uh, that one is kind of like yours. It's theprepperpodcast.com. And if you put a forward slash start in there, or if you go to cleversurvivalist.com forward slash start, that will take you to the specific blog post that I made over this triage probably about a week before I signed up to do it uh, on your show, Jack. Um, so it's cleversurvivalist.com forward slash start, theprepperpodcast.com forward slash start. And please, guys, don't crash my server. I'm on shared hosting. <laughs> I think you'll be okay. Uh, though it does happen on occasion. It always makes me happy and sad at the same time when we uh, when we break somebody's server with uh, kindness. Um, but I, it, it, you should be fine with that. Um, you know, I, when I when I when I think about all of this kind of put together, uh, it makes me realize we probably don't talk enough about. Uh, first response and dealing with traumatic injury uh, on the show. Uh, your your site. I kind of want to ask you this: what what made you come to us with that topic in mind? Your site covers a a myriad of things. It's not you know a a, a medical first response site. It's a it's a uh, it's a prepper site. It it discusses all types of things, probably as much variety as we do here. What was it that made you think like this was the thing to, to, to bring out? It was it, did you realize that we have that hole or is it just something you think is really important? Well, Jack, um, I actually did realize that you had that hole in your, um, in your programming. Uh, because like I said, uh, I really love your show and I've listened to pretty much every one of them back when you were screaming at people running down the highway, <laughs> you know, and cutting you off and stuff. And I actually decided that I was going to do the same way, but then I was like, well, we've got one Jack Spirico. Let me, let me do something my own way. So now I lock myself up in this tiny space where uh, my uh, family can't yell at me and tell me to do stuff while I'm podcasting. Uh, but uh, I did notice that you had that hole, and about the time that I was making the, the blog post, uh, I was like, wow. I don't think I've heard a lot about first aid and emergency response on Jack's podcast. I bet you that it would be something he would be into. And like you said, I talk about everything. I talk about, I mean, where you talk about permaculture, I throw in my two cents about wilderness. I sure. dabble in permaculture, but I'm not a permaculture specialist. And... um before anybody asks me, I want to go ahead and throw in my two cents that I am not a survival expert. <laughs> I am a student of survival, and I don't know what I know on accident. It's a lot of hard work, and it's a lot of time and effort. And, Jack, I really enjoy your show. I don't know how many times I've said that already, but uh, it needs to be said. These people don't know what they're missing if they're not listening to it. Well, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate the work you've done, and I appreciate you being here with us today, Ken. And uh, I, I, I popped you over an email just to make sure I don't mess anything up when I pass the links on. And if you hit reply to that, we'll, well, I'll make sure I put the links in exactly the way that you want them done. And uh, we'll make sure people can get to your site uh, and your podcast. And uh, I appreciate you being on the air with us today. All right, Jack. I had a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, and I hope you... Uh have me back on and we can talk about uh, some stuff that's more interesting to you like permaculture or we can talk about uh, well let's not talk about how much we despise the way the government's doing things I don't want to bring the podcast down <laughs> alright man alright folks and with that it's been uh, Jack Spirico today along with Ken Jensen helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way. Than
Yeah.